Thanks, Ethan. Worship team. Walt. Good song. We've been trying to see all morning. When you come to a worship service, really what we're all doing as we lead is to say, do you see? Do you see? Right? We're, we're trying to say, look. We're coming alongside, hopefully, shoulder to shoulder, but leading as well, saying, do you see? Do you see who God is? Do you see what he's done for us? Do you see what his character is like? The Kimbers. Has anyone acknowledged you yet? Hi, Kimbers. Hi, guys. Love those people. Yes. Um, yes. Um, you distracted me. How could you? Um, <laughs> you distracted me with your, your goodness. Um, what was I saying before the Kimbers rudely interrupted me? Uh, do you see, right? <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yes. Well, you actually, you know what's beautiful? You two so get this sermon. You really do. You don't even need to stay. You can go if you want. <laughs> no, you really do. I love it. Um, it's good you're here. You'll help get a critical mass going with being on board with what we're talking about. We're trying to say, do you see? That's what these songs have been saying, specifically in, do you see the glory of God? Do you see who God is when you look at creation? I hope you didn't miss that point. We are preaching through the Psalms, not all the Psalms, a few of the selected Psalms, just the ones we felt like preaching through, and um, and this morning it's Psalm 19, so if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 19, it's just a glorious picture of who God is, expressed in a glorious way. Psalm 19 is what we'll be looking at as we try to see, that's my prayer, For us, that every one of us here right now will see much, much better than we did when we walked in, than we are right now after being blessed by God through His Word in this psalm this morning. So let's pray. Lord, help us now as we go to Your Word to behold Your goodness and glory in Your Word so that we see You more clearly everywhere we see. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 19, let's read through the whole thing. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Oh, how do you do this justice? You cannot, but we shall do something. Here we go. What's going on here? Three things. I hope you notice there are really three sections to this amazing psalm. The first in verses 1 through 6, where we are taught that creation displays, proclaims, declares, pours forth the glory of God. Everything God does and has made is to display who he is, to show who he is, so we can see his glory and worship him and love him and depend on him as he intended for us to when he made us. Creation displays the glory of God. That's verses 1 through 6. But then what comes after that is a focused display of the glory of God that takes it to an even deeper and more personal level and a more life-transforming level in verses 7 through 10, where God points to his word as this revelation of who he is, of his glory, and it has a powerful transforming effect on us. And then the last verses really 12 through 14, get very personal. They move from the grand and universal and glorious to the very personal and humble in relationship with God focus that the psalm ends with. Very interesting. We move from the grand and glorious to the personal and intimate and humble. So the first thing is, Creation displays the glory of God. Knowledge comes through nature. And I hope you saw as we read through that, this powerful display is not a whisper of God's greatness and glory. It is a shout. It's a declaration. C.S. Lewis said this, he takes this to be the greatest poem within the Psalter, within the collection of Psalms, and one of the greatest lyrics ever written in the entire world. And this psalm has inspired many great works of art and is in itself a great work of art. Don't miss that. We have knowledge that comes through nature, and that nature display is a grand and loud and glorious display. It's his glory. It's his design. It's not just something that happens randomly. It's something that is called handiwork, right? It's something done carefully. It's something done with intention, and 
artistic, creative purpose. And I hope you see how it's constant. It's night and day. It pours forth speech. And specifically creation in the heavens. And the heavens are glorious, aren't they? Uh, The heavens are astounding. Look, Look at this photograph of just one picture. If you just think about all the ways the heavens are glorious, just the sun itself, just the clouds and the way the sun reflects off the clouds and the horizon puts it in perspective. And then when you gloriously have water to reflect what's happening in the sky, it's just almost more than you can possibly ever take in. And there it is. It's the heavens that declare the glory of God. But it says, this is always going on. Always. Matt Weathers was telling me after the first service that, that Venus is always covered in clouds. It's like Seattle. Worse, actually. It's always covered in clouds. You don't get this, right? You miss so much when all you have is cloud cover. I love cloud cover. I love June gloom. I love cloud cover, but how glorious when the clouds break and the sun breaks through and you get countless colors. And then it says night to night. It's not just during the day, but night to night reveals knowledge. Uh, Imagine if we were like Mars, right? And there were no clouds. How sad that would be, but God's created life for us. You could sustain life with always cloud cover or no cloud cover, but it would be so less glorious. And we have this display of God. Have you ever thought of what it would be like uh, if all we had was daytime? Imagine if, if all we had was an understanding you know, especially in ancient times, before we had the ability to see beyond daytime into the solar system. But, but the, all you know is the sun and the sky and clouds. But when you also know this, when this happens, you say, oh, there's a moon and stars and constellations and galaxies. And you have a, an overwhelming de- declaration of the greatness and glory of God. And so we recognize that the skies do indeed proclaim the glory of God, but only if you can see that way. See, there's a difference between actively seeing and passively watching. People say, oh, we're an image culture, not a word culture. And there's a lot of truth to that experientially. But just because you watch images doesn't mean you see them. I think we're good at watching in a disengaged, passive way, but do we see what God intends for us to see when we're looking at things? And we've got to learn to have the eyes to see. We want to see what God intends for us to see. So this glory he displays is constant, it's day and night, it's abundant. The words used, it declares, it proclaims, it pours forth. It's not a whisper, it's not a trickle. It's not meager, and it's sufficient. It's all we could ever ask for. And the images he gives and the verbs used to describe this are are abundant and sufficient and joyful and powerful. And there's overwhelming evidence that there is a God who made it all, and he is breathtakingly majestic and big and strong and mighty and wise So much so that the Bible says, if you reject this, it's not just innocent ignorance. It's actually a a rebellion. It's a rejection of what is obviously evident 
in creation. It's so obvious, God says. You are without excuse if you don't see beyond creation to the creator. That's what it says in Romans 1. Listen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What truth? Because that which is known about God is evident to them. For God made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. There is abundant evidence. Evidence that leaves you without excuse, guilty before God if you don't respond to that evidence. To consistently attribute the glory of God on display all the time to merely natural realities is to miss the main point of all of the natural realities. Not only is there abundant evidence, I don't want us to miss this morning in a rather cerebral, uh, maybe intellectual way of approaching life, what the real point here is. The real point here is not to settle with just intellectual understanding, but move beyond it to exuberant, joyful, rejoicing in who this God is. And that's where we go here, right? It moves to poetry. It moves to these strong ways of declaring to a poetic display of how overwhelming this revelation of God is. Verse four, their voice goes out to all the earth, all these voiceless proclaimers of nature that are literally voiceless but have a voice in the images they give us, the the realities they display for us. They go out to all the earth in their words, to the end of the world in them he has set uh, set a tent for the sun. So now we move into poetic imagery. We, We say it's the heavens and the sun is playing this central role in the heavens. And every night it's as if God has given a tent to the sun. And he, uh, that sun, he emerges from the tent. It personifies the sun and says every day this just keeps happening as a grand and, dis- and glorious display of who God is. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. See it for what it is. They are simply a poetic expression of the joy that comes from beholding God's creation. And we move to not a teaching here, but not just an informing here, but an invitation to delight in God's display of who he is in creation. And now we move to these two images. Verse 5, he comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. So get these images of of a joyful exuberance in this display. It's as if the heavens, it's as if all of creation is saying, yes, do you see who God is? Don't miss it. With vigor and a a proud declaration of what's happening here. He, He says it's like a bridegroom. I've had the privilege of standing right here many times as the bride comes down the aisle and sitting out there many other times at many of your weddings, I'm looking at, wow, there are a lot out here I've been to. And, and, and I get to stand right next to homeboy here who she walks through the doors and he says, she, I hear him go, yes, and I look at him even though she's beautiful. Yes, don't miss the groom because the groom is thrilled at what's happening. You know, 
this image, it is powerful. It's talking about the sun, but it compares the sun to a, a bridegroom emerging from the bridal chamber. This is either the, the place where the wedding and the celebration has taken place or the morning after the, the wedding has taken place, but it's a, a, a celebrating groom. So let me bring it right into contemporary context. There you go. That's what we're talking about. Jordan Joyce Weaver, they were in the first service. Yes, look at Jordan. <laughs> yes, this actually is, is very similar in many ways except for the fabrics used in the clothing to what the scene would have looked like in ancient times. The whole town would have turned out. The important family members and people would have never missed it. In their celebration, there's joy for what's happened on this day. Oh, it's a glorious thing to exalt. Not with a U, not an A. It's to exalt in this, to lift up your soul in light of what's happening. And the, the other image is powerful as well. It's, it's the, the, the sprinter. Look at those guys. It's, it's just amazing. It, this, this runner, this one who, he's, you think these guys are going to finish? I don't think they're going to stumble, right? I, I don't think they're going to quit. They're going to make it, I think, and they're going to make it in fine form. That's the picture here, right? Um, it's this strong man running its course. This is the other image of the sun and creation in general that is declaring God in that sort of strength and expressiveness. It's just beautiful. Look at Usain Bolt and Justin Gatlin, and oh, I'm sorry, Jamaican guy named Blake. I'm not sure what your first name is, but... Um, I'm sure you're a fine fellow, but look at, look at that. And, and here's the thing. They are pointing us to the sun, and, and they in themselves are glorious. Just those quad muscles can be marveled over for days, right? Seriously. Human beings are amazing creations of God. And what we can do is astounding. And the, the poetic display of this is a beautiful thing to behold as well. Don't miss this. This poem is pointing us to the beauty of God and the sun and the way it declares the glory of God. And he's using glorious displays of God's glory to point us to that. And this poem itself is a glorious display of God's glory. It's just wonderful. It's amazing. And, and listen to Peter Craigie. And if, if you're going to get a commentary on Psalms, in my opinion, the one by Craigie's fantastic. I have been so helped by it. It's not dry and just technical like so many commentaries can be that just dust. And, and so, um, but listen to this. He, but Craig, he says, the poet conveys something of the subtlety of nature's praise of God. It's there, yet its perception is contingent upon the observer. To the sensitive, the heavenly praise of God, God's, God's glory may be an overwhelming experience. Whereas to the insensitive, the sky is simply the sky. And stars, only stars. They point to nothing beyond. And, and I just want to say, I think our culture doesn't help us with this. I think especially Southern California culture, which is, I think, so much a culture of apathy and mellow and cool. and it just I, I, I come from a, the Northeast, and I grew up with mostly African Americans and Jewish people and Italians and Puerto Ricans. And you know what they think. I don't want to generalize, but I just want to celebrate, right? Yeah, 
And there can be this need to be apathetically cool. Um, you know, Doonesbury, comic strip, he made fun of something actually called Mellow Talk that you learn. Someone who's moving to California, so he was trying to help his friend get ready for moving to California and learn Mellow Talk. And this is a Doonesbury strip. See, uh, Rick, uh, in its way, Mellow Speak is a remarkably economical dialect. What Dr. Asher has done is reduce language to only its most essential components. Here, I'll show you. Give me a line to translate. How about this? The moon, like a flower in heaven's high bower, with silent delight, sits and smiles on the night. William Blake, right? Okay, let's see. In mellow speak, that would be, oh, wow, look at the moon. (laughs) Dwayne, we've got to talk. We can be skeptical of exuberance, of, of expressiveness. We do live in a culture of apathy, and this poem is moving us beyond it in its very nature with its beauty. And I want us to rejoice in the beauty of poetry, which is what the Psalms are essentially. But as I went to do this, I was thinking, oh, you know, my friend Dave Talley likes cigars. I think I let the cat out of the bag. Uh, <laughs> intentionally. Um, <laughs> and I have no idea why, right? I'm sure there is something to appreciate in a fine cigar, but I don't know what it is. I, so for me to try to help you appreciate poetry would be similar. Not to compare poetry and cigars. I think poetry is far superior. But the point is, I would feel a, a, a bit inauthentic helping you rejoice in the beauty of poetry because I, I love the idea of poetry. I know that there's amazing things in there, but I have found it incredibly difficult. So just during, in the middle of the service, I asked Laura Rosencrantz if she would tell us why she loves poetry. She's totally unprepared for this, but I trust her. I'm going to give you a microphone, Laura. Just stay right there. Why do you love poetry, Laura? These are two word people that I love. Hi. Um, I love poetry because it is the way that language um, forces us to slow down Mm. and focus. And the poet can distill language and allow us to um, suddenly be surprised by something that is familiar to us already by approaching it from a different side or um, with a new image or um, just with the ebullience of language itself. Um, Mm. It's a surprising way to find the familiar. Yes. So as I hear you talk, you're a painter. Very similar to painting, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Looking at something everybody else is looking at, but differently. Yeah, my students and I, some of you are out here, we talk about that a lot, how learning to see the ordinary and see what's amazing in it allows you to just kind of appreciate God's uh, splendor throughout every little moment of the day as you begin to see. Like you were saying earlier, um, when we see something, we don't necessarily see it. But when you can start to recognize what you're really seeing there and have a response to it, um, it really engages you in a different way. Slow down. Yes. Slow down. Are there other exhortations we need to hear to see? 
I think it takes real effort, both of those things, whether it's in seeing visually or seeing through the mind and the heart, which I think is um, oftentimes poetry uses visual language to help us get at feelings or experiences that we maybe have only experienced superficially up to that point. Um, So it helps us. I agree, we tend to just gloss over so many things in life and we're busy. And so to poetry is hard because you have to slow down and it's something that goes against what we're, all of our habits are to go quickly. Um, yeah. But it takes a lot of effort to slow down, whether it's to see the way light reflects up into a shadow on a rock, if you're painting or if you're just sitting on the beach, um, or to recognize, wow, I do have that particular universal experience of sorrow or beauty yeah. or... Whatever, yeah. whatever the thing is. I'm thinking of music. Yeah. We so seldom really listen to music, and for good reason a lot of the time. But when it's beautiful, we, we tend not to listen. Yeah, so good. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. Yes, now, we learned that without somebody faking like they understood it. So, um, thanks, Laura. Yeah, I, I do. I'm a poetry appreciation wannabe. I, I'm, I'm working. I have. I've said... Walt, send me books, and he does, and it's hard, it's hard, right, but there you go, uh, and, but I, I have been able to appreciate this poetry, uh, but I realize there are so many enemies as we were just, I would just love to talk for two more hours like this with, and open it up to all of you, but that's what grace groups are for, right? That's what lunch is for, that's what life is for, so uh, think about all the enemies to this, distraction. I, when I walk out of my office building, I walk out a third floor and there are three flights of stairs going down, and I have di- had to discipline myself to walk out and look, at the mountains are over there, the, often sunsets are over there, sometimes snow-capped mountains, and I can walk all three flights like this, check an email. I don't, I, I, I discipline myself not to do that because we, we can so easily get distracted and there's a dullness that can form in us to the beautiful. There's a cynicism, there's a shallowness that the Bible sees as sin. It's missing the glory. And you know what's a, a horrible proverb because it's so true? Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that proverb? Oh, it's a, it's a tragic thing. That sometimes just familiarity, seeing things a lot, sunsets or oceans uh, or, or mountains or most of all humans, we can become dull and cynical and familiarity can breed contempt and people can be reduced to nothing but a nuisance. We can just drive right by all the beauty all the time and never stop and smell the roses, right? And so, so we've got to fight these natural enemies, these predators of attentiveness. And you know, this isn't just with creation. This is with your wife, your husband, your children, your friends. It's not just with good music or good food. It's your local church. You know, it's amazing how people show up at their local church with all kinds of enthusiasm, and then two years later, there's just this collective, 
And then it can actually grow into a contempt, a disdain. And we always think, well, something new, some new input, some new charge of some kind. That'll solve the problem of my contempt. And only redemption, only redemption will free us from this proverb being true. Otherwise, we'll live a, a, a life of hell, of growing contempt and cynicism and apathy. Listen to Clyde Kilby, a lit prof from Wheaton from years ago. The fall of man can hardly be more forcefully felt than simply noting what we all do with a fresh snowfall or the first buds of spring. On Monday, they fill us with the delight and meaning they give, and on Tuesday, we ignore them. No amount of shouting at us that this is all wrong changes the fact for very long. Only some aesthetic power, which is akin to God's own creativity, has the ability for renewal, for giving us the power to see. Some of us don't have the view of the world to give us the joy and the life that the the glory of God displayed in creation is to give. Some of us do have this view of the world, but we've grown dull. We've become distracted. We've become cynical. We've become apathetic. And I'm praying that a work of God will happen in all of our hearts so we will be known as joyful, wonder-filled, childlike people instead of like everybody else who finds something to complain in in everything. It's a different life to which we are called when we see God for who he is. All these glories, one preacher said, are just prep school for our affections, readying them to delight in God. And that delight needs to lead to exuberant praise an exaltation in who God is. And we need to train ourselves. We can't just think this is going to happen. When we do have the view of the world that God gives us in his word that we see this morning, we've got to train ourselves to inculcate, to incorporate, to deepen these understandings in our lives. We can't just expect them to happen. We need to train ourselves. Clyde Kilby, who I just quoted, had resolutions. I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, listen to just a few. At least once every day, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above me and about me. Is that beautiful? Just once a day, train yourself to not just walk through it all, missing it all. I'm going to skip through a few of these Google Clyde Kilby resolutions. You'll find them. I just want to hit on a few. I shall not demean my own uniqueness by envy of others. Is that great? I shall stop boring into myself to discover what psychological or social categories I might belong to. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. That's beautiful. And we need that. Um, which I'm going to want to hit. Yeah, look at six. Look at six. I shall open my eyes and ears once every day. I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what Lewis calls the divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. Listen to seven. I shall sometimes look back at the freshness of vision I had in childhood and try at least for a little while to be in the words of Lewis Carroll, the child of the pure and clouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. 
Listen to nine. I shall not allow the devilish onrush of this century to usurp all my energies, but will instead, as Charles Williams suggested, fulfill the moment as the moment. I shall try to live well just now because the only time that exists is just now. And finally this. I was brought to tears when I read this. Even if I turn out to be wrong, I shall bet my life in the assumption that this world is not idiotic, neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. Life is not boring. It's not boring. It's made by a, an architect and an artist who creates everything for his glory and our delight. Second point. The word takes this even more deeply. Verses 7 through 14 point us to the word of God. And notice the six nouns, the six adjectives, and the six verbs. They're beautiful. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving, making alive again the soul. Here's how we get the eyes to see. Here's how we learn to view things differently. If all we had was creation, that would be tragically insufficient. We wouldn't know how to interpret it because the sun can be beautiful and the sun can kill you. The ocean can be beautiful and the ocean can kill you. So how do I understand the magnitude and the power and the beauty all at once? We need God to tell us, to interpret for us. That's why the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul, the testimony, the witness of the Lord. And notice as we go through this, starting here in verse 7, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant, personal name of God, he gives Moses at the burning bush and us, his children, for millennia to use to describe this God who makes and keeps promises is now used seven times. It hasn't been used until we start talking about the word of God. Creation isn't enough. We need his word to help us understand. And now Yahweh, the Lord, is used seven times. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We all start off very simple and, and, and ignorant, but he makes us wise. The precepts, the ideals and ideas of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, without blemish, without spot, enduring forever. The rules, yes, the rules, the ways God tells us to live are true, without deficiency of any kind, and righteous altogether. All these things, listen to the heart attitude toward the law of God, the commandments of God, of the psalmist. They're more to be desired than gold. More imagery here. Even much more than fine gold. Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There's great reward. The law of God, the commandments of God, the word of God is even better and deeper than the display of God's character in creation because it's only through him telling us who he is that we know he's not just a powerful creator but a loving father who adopts us as his children through his son, a husband who calls us his bride 
and weds himself to us, although we were rebellious. He knows our frame and he loves us still. That's who he is. Genesis 3, 6 talks about Adam and Eve following their own ways because they found the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the law of God repugnant in their sight and they found that good that would make them wise, independent of God. They found that desirable, same terms used here for that tree that they gave into in that temptation, thinking they could find life and wisdom and joy independently of God. And they didn't. And you won't either. Because God alone is the author of life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds by the mouth of God. Paul says to his son in the faith, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. In Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, the man of, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Old Testament and the New Testament view the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God, the rules of God as not just truth to be obeyed and agreed with, but truth to be loved and rejoiced in, and celebrated, and proclaimed. Again, Craigie, good commentator. For the heavens declare the glory of God, but the law declares the will of God for mankind, the creature. And though the vast firmament so high above us declares God's praise, it is the Torah, the law of God, that alone reveals to mankind that he has a place, mankind has a place in the universal scheme of things. It's no surprise then that in in Jewish custom, at the end of the the reading of the the Torah, of the law of God, and the yearly cycle that that's done, the the celebration when that is done is the Simhat Torah, the, the, the joy of Torah. The word of God brings joy. Please learn to see the word of God as a life-giving, wisdom-giving, joy-giving gift of God and not burdensome laws and rules that he puts on us, but ways that come from him that lead us to life. And now we move in the final verses to a very personal, humble realization. It's just amazing. We go from the grand and glorious to the specific word of God revealing who he is. And then we have the effect of all of this on the psalmist and I pray on all of us as well. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? It now gets very personal and very humble and very dependent and prayerful. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, those things I'm not even aware of and others aren't either. Keep me from those and keep me from the ones that I'm doing knowingly and willfully in bold-faced rebellion. Keep me from them. Don't give me freedom. Don't let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions and oh, make this rather the reality of my heart. Make the words of my mouth 
And even more so, the source of those words, the meditations, the dwellings of my heart, let them be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We move from the universal to the personal, from the glorious to the humble. We move from creation, just like Genesis 1 through 3. We move from creation to the word of God, to the praise of God, to conviction of sin, and dependent prayer depending on life in the rock alone to save us from ourselves. The display of who God is brings us to the end of ourselves, just like Isaiah when he sees God in the temple and says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, just like Peter when he sees the power of God in Christ, in his miraculous power and says, I'm a sinful man, depart from me. We now see ourselves for who we are. Listen to Craig again, just as the sun dominates the daytime sky, so too does the law of God dominate human life. And as the sun can be both welcome in giving warmth and terrifying in its unrelenting heat, so too the law of God can be both life imparting, but also scorching, testing, and purifying. Just like the writer of the Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active and like a two-edged sword, moving into our lives and indicating what's really going on in the depths of our hearts. The Torah can be both life imparting, Craigie goes on, but also scorching, testing, and purifying. But neither are dispensable. There could be no life on this planet without the Son. There can be no true human life without the revealed Word of God in His law. And like the creation, this Word pours forth speech that brings a right view of ourselves. And the only way we ultimately get to the right understanding, to that, that revival in our hearts, that coming alive again, that gives us the eyes to see God for who he is and ourselves for who we are, is when we behold that glory of God ultimately in the face of Christ. And what we find out in the Bible is that Jesus is the creator as well as the Father and the Spirit. He made it all. The heavens that declare the glory of God are made by Jesus, as it says in Colossians 1.17, that he's the creator, and he keeps it all going with the word of his power. And he's also the only one who always delighted in the law of the Lord. The only one who always found it joy-giving and therefore did what it says. He's the one who's our redeemer. It's his righteousness, his perfect law keeping. It's his perfect sacrificial death that makes them both our rock, the one strong enough and dependable enough and powerful enough to redeem us from our secret hidden sins and the ones we do knowingly and proudly. He's the one who can save us from that because he's our rock and our redeemer. That's why we sing rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus is the one. That's how the New Testament describes him. 1 Corinthians 10. All drank from the same spiritual drink, talking about the Israelites drinking of the water. That was just a foreshadowing of Jesus. They were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. He's the one who gives living water that if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Peter puts it this way. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus is that rock on whom we can depend, 
than that Redeemer who in his grace offers himself in his righteousness and perfection and in his death and his glorious resurrection to us so we can see, so we can move beyond the blindness and the dullness, so everywhere we see, we see God, our rock and our redeemer. Oh, Lord, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We find in Christ alone the fulfillment of all the revelation you've given us in creation. All the revelation you've given us in your word is found in the word become flesh for us. And I pray that we would see you everywhere you are to be seen, which is everywhere. And I pray we would see you vividly and joyfully in your word, your law, your commands. And I pray we would most of all fix our gaze on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.